You're listening to Uptown Radio. It's Thursday, August 14th. I'm Clara Sophia Daly. And I'm Sarah Yokobitis. Biking is a way of life for many New Yorkers, but safety remains a real concern, especially for younger riders. We love it because it make, he's like, makes him really independent. He rides it to school every day in our neighborhood. They call it the city that never sleeps, but now New York is applying technology to cut down on nighttime noise. You're, not, you're gonna lose some sleep. You're gonna be stressed out. You're gonna be upset. You're gonna be annoyed. After eight years of conflicts and lawsuits, a Buddhist temple on the Upper West Side is trying to reunite as a community. It is time to move past it. We've spent too much time, too much resources, too much heartbreak over this. And the suspect in the Brooklyn subway shooting appeared in court today. Our reporter, Lucy Grindon, was there. All that and more on Uptown Radio. But first, the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. A judge is ordering the suspect in the New York City mass shooting this week to remain behind bars. Frank R. James made his first court appearance today since his arrest for the attack on commuters in Brooklyn that left more than 20 people injured, 10 with gunshot wounds. When Hogan of member station WNYC has more. 62-year-old Frank R. James faces a terrorist charge of attacking a mass transportation system. If he's convicted, he could spend the rest of his life in prison. During a federal court proceeding, James's attorneys asked for a psychiatric evaluation while he's in detention. U.S. District Attorney Sarah Winnick called it one of the worst attacks on the city in two decades. She says James carefully planned it and caused terror for victims and across New York. A judge ordered James detained at the Metropolitan Detention center less than a mile away from the subway station where the attack occurred. Ten people were shot in the chaotic scene Tuesday morning during the rush hour commute. All the victims were expected to survive. For NPR News, I'm Gwen Hogan in New York. The state of Florida is banning nearly all abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. NPR's Greg Allen reports the new law signed by the Republican governor today is similar to one in Mississippi that seeks to overturn the landmark Supreme Court decision Roe v. Wade. Florida's law doesn't include any exceptions for pregnancy caused by rape or incest. It bans all abortions after 15 weeks except for those that threaten the life of the mother. It was patterned after a Mississippi law now under review by the Supreme Court. Arizona recently adopted a similar measure. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed the bill into law before a crowd of anti-abortion activists. This will represent uh, the most significant protections for life that have been enacted in this state in a generation. The law is seen as a direct challenge to Roe versus Wade, which has been interpreted to allow abortions until the third trimester, about 24 weeks of pregnancy. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. The Pentagon says it's unable to immediately confirm what caused a massive fire aboard a Russian warship in the Black Sea. Ukraine's military says it struck the cruiser with two missiles, while Russia claims an accidental fire is to blame. Here's NPR's Tom Bowman. A senior defense official says there's significant damage to the Moskva, which is under its own power, with sailors still battling the fire. And that damage could have been caused by a missile or something else. The official says it appears a ship is headed toward the Crimean port of Sevastopol. Ukraine has said two anti-ship Neptune missiles struck the ship, and the Pentagon official says the Moskva was about 60 miles south of Odessa and within range of the missiles. The U.S. official also noted that 405 other Russian ships in the Black Sea started heading south after the fire. Tom Bowman, NPR News. The Dow is down 113 points at 34,451. This is NPR. For Columbia Radio News, I'm Julian Abraham. 
The suspect in Tuesday's subway shooting appeared in court today. He was charged with a federal terrorism offense and held without bail. We'll have more on that story later in today's show. New York's Attorney General is launching a probe to determine whether New Yorkers were paying more than they should have for gasoline over the last month. Tish James's probe will seek to determine whether oil companies were practicing price gouging when they jacked up fuel prices after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Also in state politics, lawmakers are considering making a rule that allows them to remove people from the ballot if they're charged with a crime. This comes after Lieutenant Governor Brian Benjamin's resignation related to his fraud arrest. As the law stands now, even though Benjamin has resigned, Kathy Hochul would not be able to remove him as her running mate in the Democratic primaries unless he died, moved out of state, or ran for another office. Three men who follow the Sikh religion have been attacked in the same Queens neighborhood recently. The attacks were in Richmond Hill over the last few weeks. All of the men attacked were over the age of 60. The NYPD is investigating the incidents as possible hate crimes. Sikhs are often identifiable by their colorful turbans and have been the subject of hate attacks in the past. Columbia University President Lee Bollinger is stepping down next year. Bollinger, who has a background as a First Amendment lawyer, will finish his term in May of 2023. He has been leading the university for 20 years. A bit of a mix-up at the Yankee game last night, where a radio announcer falsely declared a home run. Hicks, here's the 1-0. Swung on, there it goes. Deep left center. That ball is high. It is far. It is gone. But caught. At the wall, caught by Tapia. Boy, I thought that was gone. <laughs> Well-known play-by-play host John Sterling was the one calling the game when he made the mix-up. The final score of the game was 6 for the Toronto Blue Jays and 4 for the Yankees. They're set to face Toronto again tonight. Julian Abraham, Columbia, Columbia Radio News. The alleged shooter in Tuesday's Brooklyn subway attack was ordered to be held without bail at his arraignment hearing at the Brooklyn Federal Court today. Lucy Grindon reported on the scene at the courthouse. Lucy, what was it like down there today? Well, when I arrived outside the courthouse in downtown Brooklyn this morning, a crowd of journalists was on the sidewalk across the street. Uh, They were preparing for on-camera reports and hoping that the suspect, Frank James, might be brought in through the front entrance. Uh, No one really knew for sure, but most people thought that he'd be taken in through a back entrance or that he was already inside the building. So were you able to get into the actual hearing? Well, when I went into the courthouse, one of the marshals who was staffing security uh, tipped me to head to the 11th floor room that's usually used for arraignments. After waiting in a courtroom with one other reporter and two sketch artists for about an hour, a clerk arrived and told us to head to the 6th floor instead. Uh, So we waited there for the arraignment to begin. But uh, then two other marshals came and said that the press access was being strictly limited and that only five reporters on this official list that they had would be allowed to uh, stay in the room for the arraignment hearing. So um, the six other reporters in the room and I all had to leave. Um, Back outside the courthouse around noon, about a dozen network technicians had set up microphones in a big cluster on a mic stand, uh, anticipating that the defense attorneys might come out and make a statement. Um, or at least they were hoping that the defense attorneys might might make a statement. No one ever appeared to talk to the press, so the reporters just did their stand-up reports with the courthouse in the background. So what happened in the arraignment? 
The hearing was short. It lasted less than half an hour, and prosecutors said James would pose a severe and ongoing danger to the community if he were allowed to leave uh, police custody. So Magistrate Judge Rowan Mann said that the complaint against James, quote, speaks for itself, and she issued a permanent order of detention. Um, She also said that she would ask the Federal Prison Bureau to give James psychiatric attention while he's being held. And has a trial date been set yet? No, not yet. Uh, If James is found guilty, though, he'll likely go to prison for life. After the mass shooting in the subway on Tuesday morning, New Yorkers' phones started buzzing, alerting them to the unfolding situation. Corey Jones is a security consultant and former SWAT team member based in Philadelphia. He says the first thing you should do when you get an emergency alert while you're on the subway is just to look around and be aware of your surroundings. Here with us. So what is the first thing a person should do when they get one of these alerts? Uh, look around you. You'll see the, the tension, the body language, the other nonverbal cues of the people around you who may be also getting the similar alerts that you're getting and start to read off of the crowd. Hopefully what I tell people is follow the three A's everywhere you go is awareness, being aware of your surroundings, of situational awareness, know where you got on the train, know where you got off, know where you're going, know where the next stop is, know the best way to get to the exits, know the best way to get from one car to another car. And if all else fails, know where you could find cover or concealment on that train should something happen. Then the other A would be avoidance. If you just look on a car and it just doesn't look safe, the the atmospherics, the way that people are acting on there. Then the last day would be action. Be ready for action. That action may be to attack. If that person is attacking you or other people, it may be to elicit other riders, other people, other citizens to help you attack that person. And um, these mass notification systems, do they work best in situations where there's a problem with weather versus um, like an active shooter situation? I would think that a weather one would be a lot easier because we do have a lot more lag time. We have a lot more time to be able to predict when there's going to be a line of thunderstorms coming. When I say a lot more, you know, that that train incident happened within 10 seconds. If we have a half hour before a line of thunderstorms, if we have three days before a tropical storm or a hurricane is coming, we, we might not even need those types of notification systems. Our modern news technology can take care of that for us. So the closer you get to that bang, the closer you get to when that incident happens, the, the more timely, accurate, and actionable information is needed. And it has to get there quickly, not only to alert people that something is happening, but to alert people the safest place to go so are, are these notification systems, are they useful in a um, in, crim, in crime situations? So, yes, they are useful. Nothing is 100 percent. They're newer. So there's going to need to be some um, consolidation and some consistency in the speed, accuracy and uh, how how widely they're disseminated to people. So Eric Adams has proposed putting um, metal detectors in stations is that a feasible security solution? What are some feasible security solutions to increase safety in these subway stations? You know what the line is to get through a metal detector. You've gone to a concert where they have metal detectors, right? It dramatically slows everything down, right? If you're a, a commuter, that's just going to potentially add another half hour to your commute to work, another half hour to your commute home. And that's going to make it harder and less attractive for people to want to come and work in New York. 
I think uh, a better or a more feasible solution might be just to have the mere presence of officers of, of canine units that are trained to detect explosive devices. But again, it falls back on how many sets of eyes are there on that subway? Thousands of them between you and me going to work, right? And we're the ones that are going to have to see something, say something, and report something immediately. That was Corey Jones, a security consultant. International Auto Show starts this week. In the wake of COVID, climate change, and gas prices, how are car makers responding? Our reporter, Mark Gilchrist, visited the show to find out. The Java Center was transformed into a car showroom, hundreds of new vehicles to be released next year, giant banners from all the car companies. Kelly Paredes is a spokesperson for Toyota, and she said the real news for them is the push in all forms of electric vehicles, hybrids, plug-in hybrids, straight electric vehicles and fuel cell cars. Toyota has over 20 million hybrid vehicles on the road today, and the fuel reduction that those vehicles provide is the equivalent of having 5.5 million EVs on the road today. But are other companies as keen on electric cars going forward? Ken Paul, a product specialist at Nissan, says that although his company has also been a leader in launching EVs, his company is hedging its bets. Because that's only about 2% of the market right now. We are continuing to be very, very aggressive about redesigning and reconfiguring combustion vehicles. The car industry is hoping the Javits car show will be a big one. The show was canceled during the COVID epidemic and some car dealerships struggled to stay open. But Rhonda Bambrick from Ford says that she was amazed at how well the company did. It's interesting, our dealers were really quick and nimble to pivot and find opportunities to reach customers in thoughtful ways during the pandemic. Uh, we went to online sales, we started um, delivering vehicles to their homes, um, and, it, and it seemed to work. We were able to rebound very quickly, um, even though some of our dealers had to close down for periods based on whatever the state mandates were. The pandemic was also a problem for car manufacturers. They had a shortage of computer chips needed for navigation and fuel efficiency. Car manufacturers were also on the lookout for supply chain problems from the war in Ukraine. Mark Gillies from Volkswagen says they have seen a few impacts. We had an issue with a supplier in western Ukraine that was doing wiring harnesses and they had to suspend production for a short period of time on actually the ID4. Um, the wiring harnesses for our electric vehicles were coming from western Ukraine. So it's had, a, it's had an issue or it's had an effect I would say. Um, I don't think it's as dramatic an effect as obviously the chip shortage that's still ongoing. Um, but it has, it definitely has had an effect. Overall, there was a lot of optimism at the New York International Auto Show, but the purpose of the event is to sell cars, and if they had problems, they want to put it all behind them. Mark Gilchrist, Columbia Radio News. You're listening to Uptown Radio. There's more to come. Stay with us. You're listening to Uptown Radio. I'm Clara Sophia Daly. And I'm Sarah Yokobitis. 
Coming up, Lincoln Center's first poet laureate shares her experiences in the position and reads a poem that she thinks the city needs right now. A Buddhist temple on Manhattan's Upper West Side is trying to heal after nearly a decade of lawsuits and turmoil. And cyclists are balancing the safety concerns of biking in New York City and getting kids involved. These stories and more coming up. But first, these headlines. For Columbia Radio News, I'm Julian Abraham. Russia has threatened to boost its military capacity if Sweden and Finland join NATO. The deputy chair of Russia's Security Council, Dmitry Medvedev, spoke with reporters today. He said Russian naval forces would be deployed to the Gulf of Finland if they feel provoked. Medvedev continued to say that, quote, it would no longer be possible to talk about the non-nuclear status of the Baltic. Also in Eastern Europe, Ukraine says it has sunk Russia's main ship, but Russia is denying it. According to Ukraine, a missile attack hit the flagship of Russia's Black Sea fleet and sank it. According to Russia, the boat was damaged on Wednesday by a fire that lit ammunition on board. Russia added that the causes are, quote, being determined, with no mention at all of Ukraine being responsible. That ship typically carries 16 missiles, and if Ukraine did in fact sink it, would be a symbolic victory for the country. The stock price of Twitter is down today after Elon Musk offered to buy the company. The move also seemed to hurt the investor confidence of Musk's Musk's other company, Tesla. Those shares were also down. This morning, Musk revealed he had filed forms to buy the company at $454.20 a share, which in total adds up to about $43 billion. In an interview this afternoon, Musk declined to say what he would do if the Twitter board rejected his offer, but said he does have a plan B. Meanwhile, a group of Twitter shareholders have launched a lawsuit against Musk for allegedly failing to disclose his 9.2% stake in the company. U.S. prosecutors have accused a Russian politician of a conspiracy to advance Russian interests in this country. The indictment is against Alexander Babakov, along with two of his associates. Prosecutors say the the scheme involved consultants in both Europe and the United States. In finance news, the Nasdaq dropped 2%, the Dow dropped 0.32, and the S&P 500 dropped 1.22%. Top gaining stocks today were Indonesia Energy, jumping 60%, Medavale Holding, gaining 50%. Top losing stocks were Forge Global Holdings, which lost 17%, and Beam Therapeutics, losing 10%. For Columbia Radio News, I'm Julian Abraham. Nearly 800,000 New Yorkers a year bike regularly, and research shows that biking once a day instead of taking a car could reduce a person's carbon footprint by almost 70%. More bikes sounds like a simple fix to our carbon emission problem. But how do you encourage more cyclists to get started, especially children when safety is often a huge concern? Rebecca Robinson reports. It's a Saturday morning and Christina Michael and her five-year-old son Andre are just leaving the Brooklyn Public Library. Andre is wheeling around his orange and gray bicycle. I, I, I like going fast on hills. <laughs> and you like, you like biking in the bike lane, right? Mm-hmm. The family loves biking safely, but in 2020, the NYPD and Department of Transportation reported over 5,000 crashes that injured cyclists across the city. 24 of them ended in fatalities. And while New York has nearly 1,400 miles of bike lanes, fewer than half are protected by a physical barrier. 
Michael says while she allows her son to ride his bike, she would feel even better with one big change. More protected bike lanes, for sure. That's what the community an hour and a half's bike ride north of here in Washington Heights is looking for. The Department of Transportation has recently proposed a project there that would shorten pedestrian crossings near schools, reduce speed limits, and of course, add a protected bike lane. These protected bike lanes have demonstrated a reduction in crashes with injuries by almost 20%. Melinda Hansen is a consultant who works on reducing the number of cars on the road. She says protected bike lanes are important because they can attract women and children, the kind of cyclists that urban planners look to as an indicator of good bike infrastructure. So if you see women, you see children, and you see the elderly actually using your bike lane, that often means it's a good bike lane. Uh, and right now in New York, we don't see that super often. So I think it's, it's a good sign that we certainly have some improvements to make. According to a 2019 report from the Department of Transportation, women made up only a quarter of all city bike riders. Hansen says the infrastructure in New York right now is good for the U.S., but bad compared to many of the best European cities because the infrastructure here just isn't as consistent. It's extremely rare for somebody to be able to, you know, leave their home or leave their work and complete a full trip on connected and protected bicycle infrastructure. Because without them, obstacles and lanes become increasingly dangerous. If you have to swerve into traffic uh, instead of riding in a bike lane, then that's obviously going to decrease your interest of of using this as a a transport mode. It feels unsafe. Adam Gottesdiener, another cycling expert, knows all about swerving. My commute is it involves a lot of, you know, swerving, you know, looking around me and in general, uh, a lot of like street savviness, I guess you would say. But Gottesdiener's commute is to high school at Brooklyn Tech. He's 17. And like many teens in his generation, he's concerned about where the planet is heading and believes that cycling is more sustainable. That's why he co-founded the Tube NYC, a team of high schoolers who advocate for increased bike safety and infrastructure that would allow New York City cyclists and kids like him to get around the city safely and quickly. I mean, if we want to have a culture where our kids are cycling in the street, we need to have safe streets because in its current state, Many of you know New York City's bike lanes are very insufficient for that. Up north, construction on the Washington Heights School protected bike lanes is set to begin later this spring. Rebecca Robinson, Columbia Radio News. This is Uptown Radio. I'm Clara Sophia Daly. And I'm Sarah Yokobitis. For the last eight years, the atmosphere in one Buddhist Zen temple in New York City has been not so Zen. The Chogesa Temple on the Upper West Side has been tormented by lawsuits, conflicts, and ultimately the departure of their head monk. Now, the community is trying to restore peace, but as Clara Grunet reports, they aren't sure how. The Chogesa Temple takes up a few floors of a brownstone on West 96th Street. There's a large gold Buddha, an altar, and pillows to sit on. Normally, the head monk would be here leading meditations and providing spiritual guidance. But now interim board member Eugene Sun is filling in. Every uh, statue of Buddha there is is water. We change every day. Sunny, I used to do it, but now I do (laughs) all three floors. The head monk, Dorm Sunim, left this February after years of conflict, leaving the temple without a spiritual leader. Few people agree on how the trouble started and who's to blame. But according to legal documents, in 2014, the head monk, together with other members, sued the chair of the temple's board, Hyang Sa Kim. Then later, Kim sued the monk. They both accused each other of bad behavior and embezzlement. The Buddhist community here is split. Some support the monk, Dom Sunim. Some say that Mr. Kim is right. 
Everyone agrees that the conflict has taken its toll. It is time to move past it. We've spent too much time, too much resources, too much heartbreak over this. Sam Cho has been a member here for 10 years, and for the last few weeks, he and the rest of the members have been gathering to find a way forward. At this meeting, around 20 people sit in a circle on the meditation pillows. Without the guidance of a leader, they have to elect a new board, sort out the finances, and hire a new chief monk. And it got a little heated. I wasn't allowed to record during the meeting, but Cho described it afterwards. Passionate. There's a lot of fight. That's kind of Koreans in a nutshell. On some level, the temple's conflicts are just like any organizations. It's about money and who's in charge. But when you add a deeply felt religion into the mix, it can seem like life or death. Jeff Wilson is a professor at Waterloo University and an expert in American Buddhism. There's sort of a, a deeper commitment often and a feeling that uh, at least this institution should be above the fray. It should be a place where people are moral, then that can become very disappointing when the human beings involved turn out to be very human and continue to act in very human ways. Wilson says that in these circumstances, there will likely never be agreement on who's right. The best bet may be that everyone just admits to some share of the blame and moves on. But some members are not giving up on trying to get them all on the same page. Ayung Choi, chair of the interim board, has recently created a Truth and Reconciliation Committee. There was a very loud demand to know what happened. Who did the right thing and who did the wrong thing and who's the winner and who's the loser. It's just too toxic. The group is going through all 456 court documents, trying to create a coherent narrative about what happened to their temple. We're working on something that I hope will satisfy those who still want to know. We don't want anything to be hidden. We want it all out there. So that the Chokasa community can once again focus on the reason they came to the temple in the first place. A sense of peace. Clark Ronald, Columbia Radio News. New Yorkers have become increasingly frustrated by the amount of noise in the city that never sleeps. According to city data, noise complaints skyrocketed by 106% at the start of the pandemic. So last summer, the city quietly began a year-long pilot program of sound meters that can catch noisy drivers and issue tickets. Our tech reporter, Sarah Yokobitis, has more. Sanford Kessler just wants to get a good night's sleep. He lives in one of New York City's loudest neighborhoods, Washington Heights. According to the most recent city data, the neighborhood accounts for the highest number of 311 complaints about noise. Last night was just awful. Kessler is a member of the Washington Heights Inwood Task Force on Noise. He says that as the weather improves, the noise level is turned up. Washington Heights is located near the George Washington Bridge and the Henry Hudson Parkway, making it a prime drag racing spot for souped up motorcycles and loud modified mufflers. Kessler says seeing the recent West Side Story movie gave him insight into the situation. That it's a turf, it's a turf thing. I mean, these young men feel that they want to control the streets, and you know, by and large, they're doing it. The city's new sound meters cost twenty-five thousand dollars each. Kessler is ambivalent that the devices will solve anything. He would rather see the NYPD step up enforcement of existing noise laws before spending that kind of money. So what exactly are these devices? Well, they're kind of like red light cameras, but for sound. They're currently in undisclosed locations throughout the city. Here's how it works. 
When noise gets past 85 decibels, a camera takes a photo of the driver's license plate. Offenders are sent a ticket in the mail and have to bring their car to a city testing site for inspection. Arlene Bronzaft has studied noise in New York City for over four decades. She's enthusiastic about the new devices. You don't even have to put up a camera on every single street in the city of New York because the message will get out there. Bronzaft is the go-to expert on NYC noise. She helped revise the city noise code in 2007 and has worked with the past five mayors of New York, all the way back to Ed Koch. People will not know where the next cameras will be. And since they will believe cameras may be coming to their own neighborhoods, this could serve as a deterrent too. The roadside devices are triggered when sound measures above 85 decibels, which is the point where hearing can become damaged. That's as loud as a police siren. Of course, emergency service vehicles like ambulances and cop cars won't be ticketed for their sirens. Bronzaf says this kind of noise puts stress on the body and impacts health. If sustained, it can break down systems. It can affect your heart. It can affect your blood vessels. So that now they have studies that show that people who live near airports subjected to aviation noise increase risk for admissions to hospitals for cardiovascular disorders. As for Sanford Kessler, he's not confident that the devices will turn down the volume in Washington Heights. In a statement, the Department of Environmental Protection said that the new program is being evaluated for its effectiveness and fairness. The pilot will wrap up at the end of June. Sarah Yokobitis, Columbia Radio News. Mahogany Brown is Lincoln Center's first ever poet in residence. She believes poetry is a tool for transformation. But Brown does much more than write poetry. She's also the executive director of Just Media, a media literacy organization. And she has authored several books, including Black Girl Magic, Chlorine Sky, and I Remember Death by Its Proximity to What I Love. A key part of her residency at Lincoln Center is putting on poetry and art events, including the Woke Baby Book Fair, a celebration of social justice children's books. Through her work as a curator, she's focused on giving voice to underrepresented poets, including children and artists from black and brown communities. Many of these artists are first-time performers at Lincoln Center. This summer will mark a year into her residency. So I spoke with her today about her practice as a poet and curator and asked her what it means for her to be the first ever poet in residence. I think um, what it means to be the inaugural poet in residence at such an institution is that um, I get to, to dream a bit differently and I get to challenge the status quo. Um, I get to remove the hinges from the doors that have uh, swung against the marginalized voices and assure that they feel welcomed and centered um, and seen in, in, in such a, you know, an illustrious space. Looking at ways in which we can challenge, challenge our ideas of what art should be or should look like or can be or, or who gets to speak for art, um, really challenging those ideas with our curation and, and showing that it can be a young person, it can be someone who's still in school, it can be a houseless person, it can be, you know, a person who's having a hard time with literacy, it can be, you know, an othered body being, like all those, all those different varieties and characteristics, they make up the voices 
that um, that changes art. So a year into the position, or almost a year into the position, I'm wondering how things are going, and maybe you could tell me about a moment over the past year where you were able to, you know, push the envelope and sort of address the blind spots that have existed. I'm always thinking about ways in which I, you know, push against those margins, um, push against the genres, and really uh, expand my discipline. So uh, I had a Woke Baby Book Fair, and at the Woke Baby Book Fair, we read diverse literature to kids, toddlers, preteens. We had so many folks show up just to read to kids. Um, so that was a really fun moment. That's awesome. Um, I kind of wanted to go back a little bit and see, you know, because I gave you a bit of an introduction, but I would love to hear how you like to describe yourself as an artist, because you do so much more than just write poetry, as you say. And I was wondering how you like to to describe yourself. I have a good a good time uh, getting lost in all the things. Um, but I guess if there was titles, I would say curator, organizer, writer and author, poet, performer, educator, and coffee lover. <laughs> that's important. That's its own little bracket. Awesome. Yeah, I think that's like a perfect transition into a question I had, which is, you know, what is your process for writing your poetry? What does that look like for you? I try to keep a regular practice of writing, but I also... I do a lot of commission work, at least within the last three years, it's been a lot of commission work. So I have to meet a deadline. It's it's a mighty dance. It's a mighty dance. I'm learning the choreo still. So amid this sort of, you know, chaotic dance and so much going on with organizing these poetry events at Lincoln Center, is there a poem that you turn to in times of sort of chaos or distress that might ground you? I guess it will always be, you know, the classics for me, which include Lucille Clifton's Won't You Celebrate With Me Today? Something Has Tried to Kill Me and Has Failed. Um, so I, I love that poem as a, a touchstone. What is it about poetry that you feel is important? And what do you feel it provides to society? I reckon it's, it's a, a transformation tool. It acts as both stage and platform for the voices that are constantly muffled and erased. It acts as a mirror for for those things that we refuse to look at, that we try to, you know, hide in the shadows. Would you read a poem for us that, you know, maybe has been on your mind lately in regards to everything that's been going on in New York, or just something that you that you want to read today? This actually has been sitting with me for a bit, so I'm going to read. This is the honey. This is the honey. There is no room on this planet for anything less than a miracle. We gather here today to revel in the rebellion of a silent tongue. Every day, we lean forward into the light of our brightest designs and cherish the sun. Praise our hands and throats, each incantation a jubilee of a people dreaming wildly despite the dirt beneath our feet or the wind pushing against our greatest efforts 
Soil creates things. Art births change. This is the honey. And doesn't it taste like a promise? Well, your heart is an accordion and our laughter is a soundtrack. Friend, dance to this good song. Look how it holds our names. Each bone of our flesh homes sing welcome. Oh, look at the gods dancing as the rains rain against a steely skyline where grandparents sit on the porch and nod at the spectacle in awe of the perfection of their grandchildren's faces. Each small discovery unearthed in its own outpour. Tomorrow, our daughters will travel the world with each poem and our sons will design cities against the backdrops of living museums. Yes, our children will spin chalk until each equation bursts a familial tree rooted in miraculous possibilities and alive. Thank you so much. That was Mahogany Brown, poet in residence at Lincoln Center. Well, that does it for this edition of Uptown Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. Our executive producers today were Dave Marquez and Emily Schutz. Leading our staff of reporters was senior producer David Newtown. Director Clara Grenet coordinated our studio production with Chantel Destra and Rebecca Robinson. Mark Gilchrist and Lucy Grindin were our reporters. Our web editor, Rebecca Robinson, got this live stream to the web. And Julian Abraham produced the news. Senior editor, Elliot Schiaparelli, led our copy team. Our instructors are Sally Herships, Finn Shapiro, and Robert Smith. Haley Zhao advised our staff. I'm Sarah Yokobitis. And I'm Clara Sophia Daly. Uptown Radio is live on Thursdays at 4. Until next time, you can always find us on uptownradio.org. From all of us here at Uptown Radio, thanks for listening.